Welcome, beautiful people to Camp Koji. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news in the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need. Now, on today's show, we're going to talk about Overwatch 2, we're going to talk about PlayStation Stars, and of course, we have to talk about the totally unexpected and surprising shutdown of Stadia. That's like the 96-year-old queen. Nobody saw it coming. Uh, we have a, first of all, we have a few updates uh, this week, starting with this uh, GTA 6 hack. The 17-year-old arrested in London has pleaded not guilty. Just a reminder, there's not been 100% confirmation that this is the person who hacked Rockstar Games. But what was interesting was he pleaded not guilty to using his mobile phone to hack companies. Now, imagine for us finding out that this kid was able to hack into Rockstar Games and be a part of, without a doubt, the biggest leak in video game history using an iPhone. Uh, that, that, that'd be insane. Uh, we also got another update to a story we spoke about on Camp Koji, actually earlier this year, last April, an anonymous employee filed a complaint against Nintendo and contracting company Aston Carter with the National Labor Relations Board. They claimed they were fired after bringing up a question on a group call with NOA president Doug Bowser. The question was, quote, what does NOA think about the unionization trend in QA in the games industry as of late? They claimed they were fired a month after that incident. Nintendo publicly claimed that they were fired due to leaking company information that contractor has now come forward as Bakenti Clifton in a new interview with Axios. Clifton's question wasn't addressed in the meeting, but later that day, Clifton says a supervisor from Aston Carter called them saying it was, quote, a downer question and advising them to direct such inquiries to the contracting firm, not Nintendo. Now, apparently Clinton was baffled and kind of angry. Less than a month later, Clifton was fired. Now, Clifton tells Axios that they had pressed supervisors for proof of a violation and were shown a tweet they posted on February 16th, which stated, quote, in today's build, someone somewhere must have deleted every other texture in the game because everything is now red, just like pure red. It's very silly. Clifton says this is misdirection, noting that the tweet is vague. It does not clearly identify what Clifton was working on. Now, it is true, yes, that tweet does sound kind of vague, but Nintendo takes confidentiality pretty seriously. They might have just looked at it as nipping it in the bud in terms of letting this person go. Now, on the other hand, it shows that Aston Carter put her social media under a microscope. Well, I actually, you know, I said her, it might be they. I'm actually not really sure, just to be respectful. Um, they were searching for a reason to fire this person, right? The word union is like, screaming bomb on an airplane you know it'll it'll almost it'll put you like on that no fly list really quickly now since this person is a contractor it was aston who let this person go probably out of fear of losing their nintendo contract there's movement to unionize nintendo might just go find another contracting company and it kind of sounds like that's what happened um, when it comes to this. Uh, like I said, we, we don't really have the entire full story, but it sort of sounds like this person brought up unionizing, Aston Carter, uh, Doug Bowser, or someone from Nintendo probably spoke with Aston Carter about it. They put this person's 
Twitter under a microscope and then just tried to find like the first thing that would allow them to give a good cause for letting this person go. This is exactly why I always tell everybody I ever come across in my life, companies do not care about you. Um, the other thing is this person's, uh, I guess, beef, I'll say, is more with Aston Carter, not really Nintendo. I think the person that, the, the company that let this person go was Aston Carter. It wasn't Nintendo because when you are a contractor, even though you work under Nintendo, pretty much all of your paperwork kind of legally, you are employed by Aston Carter. So hopefully they find the proper resolution for, uh, you know, what they're looking for. Now, also last week, uh, I briefly spoke about cyberpunk climbing back up the charts, so to speak. CDPR claimed over a million players were logging in daily. Over 100,000 people were playing the game concurrently, and they announced 20 million copies of the game were sold. Now, cyberpunk sale history has been really interesting. When you sort of zoom out and look at everything throughout its entire uh history on store shelves the game had 8 million pre-orders 13 million copies were sold in its first month alone remember that was december 2020 then in april 2022 they announced 18 million sales so it took them 16 months to sell just 5 million more copies and then another five months to sell just 2 million and you know while this is an amazing number. We have to remember that the game has rarely been full price during that time. It feels like the average price is probably around 20 or 30. And that was one of the most interesting things that I found in terms of the media coverage about Cyberpunk 2077 coming back into the limelight is that none of them really mentioned when talking about those sales numbers. Like, yeah, those sales numbers might be high, but a lot of those sales, 20, 30, 40 bucks, a lot of people forget that the game was at one point, $5. Yes, it went as low as $4.99. I distinctly remember because there was a friend of mine that was sort of interested in the game and he was telling me maybe maybe once it once it goes like really cheap. And I remember texting him, telling him, look, Best Buy is actually selling it for $5. I distinctly remember that. As far as PC, I've seen codes go as low as like 10 bucks. I think it was the lowest um, CD key that you can find on PC. And it seems that the media has been praising CDPR for the work they've done on the game and claiming Cyberpunk 2077 as a, a successful comeback. Now, let's start with the facts that just can't be disputed in terms of what we have to remember about Cyberpunk 2077. The leaders of CDPR didn't just ship a broken game. They deceived their staff by making private and public promises of no crunch. They deceived shareholders. They deceived audiences by claiming that the game wouldn't launch until it was ready. False. They used the media to deceive customers by not allowing them to post captured PC footage in their review. Yes, that happened. And most of the outlets that did this, for example, IGN, never really came forward and admitted that that was not the right thing to do, right? You basically helped this company deceive people who have pre-orders. And of course, they sent out console review codes the day right before the game was supposed to release. And some outlets actually got this code the day of. Now, the other thing that's interesting about the story is that they're still technically deceiving the public because they must have known for a while that that Phantom Liberty expansion DLC would not be coming to Xbox One or PlayStation 4, but they didn't announce anything until they actually revealed it. 
right? So I feel like that's deceiving. You know, you were able to collect, you know, maybe like six months of sales as opposed to if you would have announced six months ago, like, hey, we just want to make a quick announcement. If you own an Xbox One or PS4, we have made the difficult decision. We're not going to be porting over the DLC um, to the system. And then at that point, people would have been able to choose. Now, there are free upgrades. So when and if those owners do upgrade to the Series X or the PS5, at least they'll be able to upgrade for free. But you see, like, that sort of financial deception to me, uh, that's why I feel like we can't just all of a sudden completely forgive and forget everything that happened within CD Projekt Red. And remember, this is really a leadership problem. Now, I'm not going to call a game that we collectively agree is finally at the place it should have been launched at a comeback. I'm sorry, but I'm not. It took them 14 months to allow people to change their appearance after starting a new game and adding some new apartments to rent. Both of those things were promised for the game at launch. I think it took modders like two weeks to, to add the ability for me to change my appearance. But of course, something like that went all the way to the back of the line because they had to fix the game. It shows you just how broken it was. And it took them 21 months to add transmogging. These are things that should have been there within a six-month window. So I'm not going to praise a company for delivering a stable game and adding things that should have been there either at launch or once again within a six-month window. Now, I'm not here to attack anyone who's enjoyed or continues to enjoy this game. I, I know there are plenty of people out there who this is their game of this generation, and that's awesome. That's great. And I'm not saying that the game is meritless, right? It's a cool shooter, great story, great characters. I'm personally enjoying the game better now on another playthrough because while there are definitely still bugs, there are definitely still issues with the AI. You know, you still have that issue where, you know, if you park your car, you'll see just 10 cars piled up behind it because the N the AI doesn't have it written for them to just drive around the car that you left in the middle of the road. So small things like that. If you melee in a crowd, you see 30 people. Even if you melee air, you see 30 people run away. You know, um, between the bugs, uh, characters and writing are still something really special. And I feel like I'm enjoying the game more now because I don't have that expectation. The game is still not what I feel was sold to me, but I'm enjoying it now that I kind of don't have that in mind. It's just like, okay, it's a cool shooter and I'm enjoying it with the way that it is. I feel like the comeback is now beginning. You know, during last month's Nightwire stream, they confirmed that they are overhauling the police system. They're adding vehicle to vehicle combat, which is kind of funny because there's actually a mod that actually already does both of those things. They also mentioned a new kind of gameplay loop for melee, which the game needs, a bunch of new actions in the perk tree, more cyberware feeling cyberware, which the game definitely needs. Um, I personally would love more interactions with the world card games or a little distractions like the actual animations when I'm consuming food or drinks will be great for immersion. But, you know, I was thinking about just overall, this game must be one of the saddest stories our industry has ever seen because at the heart of all these issues at launch, there were all these amazing things, right? The story, characters, writing, voice acting, direction, the quest, all of that, is some of the best you'll ever find in any game. And I genuinely do feel bad for that team. So I think, yeah, there is, it is worthy of like breathing a sigh of relief. I don't think we need to keep this game in jail forever. They did go through some punishment. They lost a lot of money, even though they're bragging about $20 million, 20 million sales. 
the majority of that was not at fifty nine ninety nine. Wait, actually, yes, the majority of it was at fifty nine ninety nine because I was thirteen million copies at launch, but uh, a lot of their recent sales were not at full price. And I wanted to briefly talk about this because last week CD Projekt Red Quest Director Powell Sasko got kind of teary-eyed in a recent stream where he spoke about how good it felt that so many people were now playing the game. And I think a lot of us, myself included, kind of forget that there are real people behind these games. Um, so yeah, I'm happy that more people are playing the game. As I said, I don't think it needs to be in jail forever, but I'm not ready to call it a comeback because I feel like the game is just now where it's supposed to be if the leaders didn't make a super shitty decision. Um, but I also feel like, you know, let them throw the party. Like, I, I, I get that. And hopefully they keep adding uh, more and more stuff into uh, the game. Now, our next story, we have to briefly speak about Overwatch 2. The embargo on more Overwatch 2 information lifted, basically Overwatch 2 previews from, from media and influencers. And fans got an in-depth look at Blizzard's monetization strategy. Many fans are just unhappy with what they saw. <laughs> you know, uh, I put together a video that's on the YouTube channel going more in-depth with the different tactics Blizzard is using to encourage you to spend. So I'm not going to spend too much time on that. Now, as a fan, I was very indifferent to the monetization strategy for two big reasons. Number one, I'm just not the consumer Blizzard is targeting. I don't care about skins and emotes and stuff like that. I feel like this is a fast paced FPS. I kind of feel like I'll be spending money for other people to admire my skin, not me. And I also, once again, don't care about charms and all that other stuff that they are adding. Number two is I came to grips with this model the moment Blizzard announced it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of surprised at uh, why so many people are surprised in terms of how aggressive they're being, because as soon as they announced free to play, number one, I've said on this podcast years ago that Overwatch needed to go free to play. Uh, and I understood what that meant. I understood that with this game going free to play, it meant that I'm not going to be getting skins anymore, but the reason why I felt like it needed to be free to play is because number one, it has to compete with all these other shooters on the market. Remember, their entry level is free ninety nine, whereas Overwatch entry level, even if it's at low as low as nineteen ninety nine, there still is uh, more friction as opposed to Fortnite, for example, or Apex Legends. The other thing is that by going free to play, you're getting more players, and by going free to play, now that team has that you raise the expectation that means more content but so i'm a little bit surprised as to how many people out there or fans are surprised by how aggressive they are but i also understand that it may be tough to accept this shift in the overwatch model right you go from being able to technically have a pretty fair chance at acquiring all skins and items through pure gameplay to pretty much everything being behind a paywall, right? Overwatch 2's cosmetics 
have basically been redesigned to serve a single purpose to get you to spend money. And, you know, a couple of things that, that I noticed they were doing, they utilize a popular currency exchange model, meaning you can't just outright buy something. Legendary skin is 1900 coins. You can't just get $19 or you can't convert $19 of real money to 1900 coins. Uh, the free battle pass is utter garbage in an effort to encourage you to buy the battle pass outright. Just a lot of old tried and true free to play tricks. They added weekly challenges to earn currency that works out to about 540 coins every week. That means that if you don't use those coins to buy battle passes, you can maybe earn, uh, what would that work out to maybe like two legendary skins per year, right? So obviously this is all being designed because they, they, they it's not really that it's not only that they want you to spend money, but Blizzard now needs you to spend money. That's the other thing that people need to understand is that it might be looked upon as like greed. Wow, this is so greedy. But it's also a need, right? People need to get paid. Servers need to be maintained. Uh, and they can no longer do that by selling the game at $59.99. Uh, even if at some point it went down to $40, $20, it was still like a baseline of $50, $60 game, right? And... I think it's hard for old players to accept this new system because they've grown so used to not spending money on new items. And the one thing I want old players like myself to remember is that at least you have a lot of skins. Imagine a new player, a new player coming into Overwatch for the first time this week. They got to play for a month to get a single skin. <laughs> like they did announce in a, a, a giveaway for Kariko where I think you have to watch like six hours of Twitch or something like that. So yeah, at least they'll have one skin there waiting for them, but they still have to unlock Kariko <laughs> to even touch that skin if you're a person that doesn't want to spend money, right? So part of me understands people getting upset over locking heroes behind pay and play walls. You know, it's basically indicative of Overwatch's new problematic direction, right? Decisions are now profit-driven instead of being design-driven, right? For example, challenges in the game that reward currency or battle pass XP are in direct conflict with the core design of the game, right? If a challenge requires me to win games as Reinhardt, it means I'm not choosing the right tank for the current situation. Or if there's a reward for playing a support, but I never do, but I want to complete it because I'm trying to uh, level up my battle pass when I'm trying to earn coins, I'm affecting the win rate of my teammates. So that means that it's going against the design of the game. The design of the game is, yeah, you know, choose the heroes that you want to play and you find fun to play. And hopefully you have a pool of, you know, three or four of those at least. But also that you're willing to make those changes when you need, when you need to make those changes because at certain moments, Blizzard is saying like, yeah, this game is not really rock, paper, scissors anymore. There, there are no hard counters. Uh, that's not, I don't feel like that's a hundred, a hundred percent true, especially for if you're playing tank. If you're playing tank, there's only one tank. And there are a lot of maps, not only just maps, but situations where a Doomfist is not going to work as well as a Reinhardt or an Orisa. For example, using an Orisa, you can use her really well to 
create space. If you're going aggressive, you use Junker Queen. So you kind of are looking at the rest of your composition and you're making those changes. But, you know, if the week is almost over and the weekly challenge is to win matches as Doomfist, I, I, I kind of don't really care. I'm going to be playing most of the matches Doomfist because I'm trying to get that weekly challenge uh, uh, made, or excuse me, get that weekly challenge finished. I'm not really worried too much about winning. Like I'm, I'm trying to increase the chances of me winning with Doomfist, not just winning plain and simple, right? So it goes against the design decision. That's one of the worst things that's going to happen with this game is that, a lot of things are now, a lot of the decisions are being made behind how can I get people to stay playing my game and how can I get them to spend more money, right? So locking heroes behind pay or play, for example, which they're doing, what that does, um, I feel like it creates, I don't think it creates pay to win, as people are saying. I think what it does is pay to increase your chances to win <laughs> because... Uh, I don't feel like even if there's a broken hero at launch or if, if a hero's meta, I don't think that automatically is pay to win, but it does increase your chances because often when you new heroes launch, uh, they launch in an unbalanced state. So it's really only going to uh, affect quick play because they're locked out of competitive for the first two weeks. But when this game launches this week, Kariko is currently unbalanced right especially her ult her ultimate is just this is way too much it's too powerful right now so they do have to dial it back so they gave themselves this two-week window where they're like you know so when we launch someone it takes two weeks for them to get into competitive but within those two weeks the people who have Kariko unlocked their win rates are increased versus teams who do not have Kariko Right. So that is sort of, once again, pay to increase your chances. You know what I'm saying? So another part of me feels that current Overwatch players, I'm going to be honest, are blowing it a bit out of proportion. Right. The overwhelming majority of Overwatch players play a single row. And that's why I feel like locking heroes behind a paywall for as much as I completely disagree with it. I think it is being blown a bit out of proportion because chances are your role, whatever role you you pick, support, DPS, tank, you're probably only getting a single hero per year. At the most, you're getting two. So that means that once a year is when you're really going to want that battle pass. So that's either $10 or if you're really enjoying this game, you're probably playing enough where you're earning free coins through weekly challenges. All you need to do is have the willpower and the discipline to not spend those on skins. Now, to wrap this up, I don't want it to sound like something where I'm defending uh, these decisions that were made by Blizzard because I think a lot of them are a little bit aggressive. But I think what old fans need to remember is that this is a new game. Whether Some people want to call it Overwatch 1.5, 1.9, or whatever. It's still a sequel. And you have to remember the commitment that Blizzard has made. A new season every nine weeks. They also co committed to, I believe, two or three new heroes per year. There also has to be this commitment to new maps, new modes. All that stuff has to be consistently added into the game because you have to retain those players. You have to keep them coming back. And if we look at games like Halo Infinite, the reason why they're suffering is because, remember, Halo Infinite season is lasting like 
seven months or something crazy like that, right? These guys are promising a new season every nine weeks. And with that new season comes a new content and of course new stuff for you to spend money on. And I think what old players need to remember is there is no game on the planet. I'm not going to even argue about this. There's no game on a planet where you as a player should feel entitled to playing it completely for free forever with zero pressure um, to give. In my opinion, yes, there are moments where, you know, the, the pressure and the tricks and the tactics can be like, man, this is really predatory. But if you are enjoying this game, and remember, this is a full-fledged, in my opinion, really excellent multiplayer game, and you don't want to spend money, then in my opinion, it's up to you to raise up your discipline. You have to get to where I'm at, where it's like, I always remind myself that the stuff that I'm being asked to buy does not affect the game. It just, it just really doesn't, you know? There is no pay-to-win skin. There's no pay-to-win emote. It just, it really does not exist. I think there was a single moment in Overwatch history where there was kind of a technical pay-to-win skin. And I think it was an Ash skin that gave her a, a like a better reticle. I can't, or, or something along those lines. And then they had to update and change it. But it's, it very rarely, rarely happens. So it's either you're patient or you're giving money. So remember, if you're a DPS player, you're probably going to get one DPS a year. Me, I'm support. I'm looking forward to getting one support a year. So what that means is that if I'm enjoying the game, I'm going to have a thousand coins earned naturally for me to buy the battle pass where that new support hero comes in. If I don't, then that's $10 a year. This Overwatch 1 lasted six years. That's $60. And if you're really enjoying the game, what's 10 bucks a year? Or, or if you're really enjoying it, 20 bucks a year. The other thing is people have to remember that the expectation of you having and unlocking everything, that's completely unrealistic. I saw a uh, a Reddit post where someone calculated, uh, you know, oh, it costs $12,000 to own every single piece of content that was released for Overwatch 1 in Overwatch 2. That's like me telling you H&M is, is, a, is a scammy company because it cost me $50 to buy everything in, in this single aisle of the store. <laughs> like it, does, it just doesn't make any sense because you're taking a mentality of the first game. This is why I feel like it's so hard for people to sort of accept what's happening is that they're so used to being able to own every single thing, but it's unrealistic. That's That's you just kind of have to accept that that's not really the way this is going to go. Now this game releases this week. If, if uh, just be like, just like me, if the grind is, is, is too much, um, then I'm probably just going to stop playing. And it's unfortunate because it's a part of me is looking back to overwatch one. It's like, yeah, it, it kind of is the end of an era, but we'll find out this week. I'm still having fun and I'm going to continue playing it. Next story uh, deals with PlayStation Stars. So last week, PlayStation's um, loyalty program, PlayStation Stars, launched in Asia. Uh, it's coming to the Americas this week on October 5th. And then Europe, Australia, and New Zealand is coming October 13th. Japanese gaming website Automaton revealed more details about the program. Uh, it looks like all participants start at level one, duh. And buying one full game 
on a PlayStation Store and obtaining a trophy with a higher rarity than normal will promote you to level two. And I believe this is tied into in-game trophies. That's what you're talking about. Uh, buy four full price games and earn 128 rare trophies and you'll hit level four, which comes with an interesting perk. If you're level four, when contacting PlayStation customer support, the chat order will be prioritized. So you're basically given higher priority when responding to inquiries compared to these broke maggots who don't have time to play games or spend money. Uh, there also apparently is a hidden fifth tier that was data mined called Diamond, which is invite only. Not much info on what this is, though, so you know, I'm not really going to be discussing it. PlayStation previously wrote in its announcement that once you reach a status level, you will stay there for the remember of the the remainder of the calendar year plus an additional 13 months. So if you become level four January 2023, you'll lose that status January 2025. So you keep it for quite some time. Now, first off, this hasn't been formally announced by Sony. It could be a Japan only reward, although kind of doubt it since Sony hasn't really addressed the negative backlash that this story has been taking on online. Now, I personally found this funny, but mostly because I feel like it's a really shitty reward for reaching the highest level. Like someone reaches the highest level of this new PlayStation Stars program. I think you also get like points to spend on stuff, but I'm honestly not 100% sure. And then of course you get all these little digital items but in terms of like an extra thing you get, I mean, at least give me like a 30% off coupon. I don't know anything. Like I feel like giving me customer service priority is a really crappy high level reward. You know, like, hey, we're rewarding you for your loyalty and the amount of money that you spend. So we're going to take your customer service call faster than anyone else's. That's why I find this funny. Now, there were two very strong reactions to this. You had the, the PlayStation stance. Of course, they're going to pull out the sword and shield, defending this, claiming that those who spend most money should get priority. Uh, they compared it to like other companies, like, oh, every company of the world, they do this. They give priority to the people that spend the most money. The issue with that argument is that PlayStation is a product. It's not an act of service like an airline, for example, if you're flying, you know, 250 days out of 365, for example, American Express um, has kind of an extra incentive there um, to take your call a lot faster than anyone else because you're the person who's going to need the most help. For something like PlayStation, five playstation four you're not calling customer service 200 days of the year right so that doesn't really make any sense um now they could have done something what could have been differently was like you get priorities access when we introduce a special edition for something like that um I, I, I could see something like that happen. I think I think that is more like something that you could defend as like, hey, I'm spending the most money. I should get priority for the collector's editions because PlayStation solving multiple issues when they do something like that. Well, not issues, but gripes, right? You're 
lessening the amount of scalping, you're ensuring that that Mjolnir edition of God of War gets in the hands of an actual PlayStation fan and owner, right? So that, in my opinion, would have made more sense for like the highest level reward, right? And then you had the other reaction, people that felt that you know, no one should take preference when it comes to customer service. And the people who need customer service the most are people who don't even know what PlayStation stars is, which is why, you know, this doesn't really make any sense. If you're buying four PlayStation games a year and you're earning 128 trophies, chances are you play a lot. And the chances of you calling customer service are pretty slim, which is also once again, why this is a pretty useless perk, right? Um, the people who use customer service the most are the parents, especially when it comes to like Christmas time, for example, they're going to need help and information on how to set up updates and all that stuff. If you're a PlayStation uh, owner, that means that you're, it probably means that you're really tech savvy. So when PlayStation VR two launches, for example, you shouldn't get priority over a person who maybe this is their first ever VR headset. And they, they're really not like a super duper gamer they're probably going to be using customer service more than you. So it doesn't really make any sense that you would get priority. But overall, like I said, I think it's dumb. Uh, it's a dumb perk. But I also think that this is a good... Uh, one good thing to note is that gaming media definitely blew this out of proportion, right? Because once again, how often will these level four players actually be using this perk? You know, I saw one, I'm trying to remember his name. I think it was Ryan McCaffrey from IGN, but I can't remember. I think he retweeted and he said, you know, oh, PlayStation is saying the quiet part out loud. That, that first of all, it doesn't even apply here. <laughs> but second at all, of all, it's like you're making, it, it, it's, you're building a, 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 a mountain out of this, you know? What is it, a mountain out of a molehill, I think is what it's called or how the saying goes, this really isn't that big of a deal. <laughs> like PlayStation saying the quiet part out loud. No, I think it's more about PlayStation. What is this really shitty, crummy perk for being the highest level? Uh, it, it was definitely blown out of proportion by media, uh, whether writing, writing articles or on social media. I think that it, it's it's almost like, who's the villain of the month. And I think for the last month and month and a half, two months, it's been PlayStation. And it feels like any small thing that they do, the media feels this need to like, okay, we need to hate clicks. We get, you know, this is the current villain of uh, the current story arch of, or arc of, uh, of, of, of video games right now. PlayStation is the villain. So any small thing that they do, we got to treat it like it's like, look at how anti-consumer PlayStation is. Here's another reason to call them anti-consumer. I, I just feel like it, it was just definitely blown just way out of proportion. Like it, it really wasn't that big of a deal. I think the main thing to take away from this story is this is a really shitty perk. You guys got to come up with way better things for people who spend a lot of money. Look, steal my idea. I just gave it to you. Let people who are at level four or five get priority access to, um, you know, new, what do you call it? New, um, shoot, 
I'm, I'm having the only brain fart right now, uh, new collector's editions, or maybe they have access to exclusive editions. That'd be kind of cool. Like, you know, you get access to an exclusive steel book when you order through PlayStation store. Uh, what other ideas can I come up with for PlayStation? Um, shoot. What else would be good? I just had one in my head and I, I just kind of, kind of blanked out. Um, maybe you have access to exclusive controller colors or when you order those really, those colored plates, maybe there's an exclusive God of War one that you can only uh, get if you're level four, or maybe you can engrave your name on the side of it, but that's exclusive to level four, level five, those types of things where if it wasn't accessible to the overall public, it wouldn't be like a huge, huge deal. But it's also like the dragon to chase, where if you're like level two or three, it'll encourage you to play more, unlock more trophies, maybe buy, you know, a game that you've been wanting to buy for, for a while because like, man, I really would love that engraving or that exclusive side panel thing. Like, you know, there's a lot you guys can do. This whole thing of like, oh, we'll answer your call quicker. Kind of a shitty perk is that. And finally... We have to have uh, a moment of silence for Google Stadia. Okay, that's it. Let's move on. <laughs> now, um, who could have seen this coming, right? Sure as hell couldn't have been Joel that has been... Honestly, I've been, I've been kind of uh, dumping on Stadia for, for probably the better part of the last four years, even though it wasn't overtly everything... Uh, negative but if you listen to this podcast i would hope that you would have would have actually you know what i'm gonna say i wish you would have I, I would have hoped that you would have you know learned from me telling you don't buy into this is going to get shut down at some point but in reality if you didn't listen to me you would have played stadia for free for four years so you know i think either way it's like a win-win right so in a blog post stadia vp Phil Harrison wrote, quote, and while Stadia's approach to streaming games for consumers was built on a strong technology foundation, it hasn't gained attraction with users that we expected. So we've made the difficult decision to begin winding down our Stadia streaming service. We're grateful to the dedicated Stadia players that have been with us from the start. Um, Phil Harrison is now... Um, <laughs> is now the official Grim Reaper of gaming. PlayStation 3, Xbox One, and now Stadia. This guy has put so many projects into the ground. Uh, a lot of people will say that he fails upwards. I, I really don't understand how this man uh, is still able to get work. I want to know this man's secret. Um, now, it's no surprise, if, especially if you're listening to this podcast, that I had zero faith in Stadia surviving. Uh I consistently made jokes about them on Twitter. <laughs> I um, talked about them a lot on this podcast. Actually, I went back to double check. There were three episodes that I titled Google Fadia, Google Fadia 1, 2, and uh, 3. If you are a fan of this podcast, first of all, thank you. Second of all, uh, you know, I think it was, it was about a month ago. You remember that we addressed a rumor here on the pod where it was claimed that the service was in the early stages of winding down. And I said, yeah, sounds about right. I could see that being correct. So, um, like I said, a lot of this is not really much of a surprise. 
the surprise, though, was in that Phil Harrison blog post, he wrote, quote, we will be refunding all Stadia hardware purchases made through the Google Store and all game and add-on content purchases made through the Stadia Store. Players will continue to have access to their games library and play through January 18th, 2023. So that's when it officially shuts down so they can complete final play uh, sessions. Um, Now, pro subscriptions will not be refunded, which makes sense it, it just really wouldn't make any sense for pro subscriptions to be refunded um it's very surprising that they refunded 100 percent. or i guess there's levels of surprise to that um refunding hardware in my opinion was 100 percent a surprise because i think if they would have refunded the games and not the hardware i think it would have been like understandable um I'm a little bit surprised that they didn't go the route of trying to figure out a way to let the controller just work on its own without Stadia. So you could still use it as a PC controller. People are saying that you can still plug it in wired and use it as a PC controller for other things, but I'm not hundred percent sure about that. So for that reason, I think it's kind of weird that they refunded the hardware. The other thing is that the other part of the hardware was the shoot. I don't even remember the name of it, but it's that, attachment that you attach to your tv um you can use that without stadia right you can still uh use that to stream netflix and stuff like that and you can use it to mirror your phone so it still has a use without stadia so for that reason very surprised and honestly very generous that they decide to refund that i think that if they would have announced we are refunding 75% of your software cost. I think it would have been like, man, that sucks. But I still would have thought that it would have been easily absorbed by the public, by the public from like a PR standpoint. Um, so I, I, I do think it's very generous and I do think that overall it's a really good thing for our industry that they did that because one of the big issues with our industry going forward is reckoning with the fact that um, what happens to digital games when these services, when and if these services shut down. And I think it would not have been good from an overall metrics viewpoint to have one of the first majorly funded cloud programs shut down and not refund absolutely anyone for their games, right? It would have been just a bad look. And I think that's how Google looks at it. It's like, this is just like a write-off. In my opinion, this was a loss. I don't think this is something where they're going to break even or um, come away with any profit at all. This is going to be a loss for the company overall. I can't imagine the service even breaking even, especially after everything is all said and done and they're having to to go through with these uh, refunds. Um, now, the shutdown wasn't smooth or, or hasn't started, but from the very beginning, it looks like it, it wasn't smooth. Uh, apparently, Stadia partners and developers were not warned of the shutdown. One developer named Tom Vian or Vian tweeted, quote, Tangle Tower was due to launch a Stadia in two days time. And this article was the first I heard about it shutting down. Now, of course, they could still launch that game, maybe. 
but no one will be able to buy it because the store has already been shut down. I don't understand how you can be that completely awful with your uh, messaging. Um, employees found out the morning of the announcement, which is probably why that developer had no idea. Usually if you're developing a game, you're, you're probably, uh, you're, it's not like you are in emails with Phil Harrison, right? And the people at the top of Google, you probably have one or two people that are in charge of your account. So that they probably found out at the same time you did. Um, there are also other things to consider with this shutdown, such as player saves. A lot of, uh, players were unhappy and kind of questioning what's going to happen to all the time that I put in. You know, I'm sure those 12 people are very concerned about the Destiny 2 saves. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sure it was more than 12, 15. Uh, Bungie, IOI, excuse me, Bungie, IO, Interactive, and Ubisoft have already announced intentions to work on a method to transfer games over to PC. So that's really cool to hear. Nothing concrete yet. Uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 and Cyberpunk 2077 seem to be the most popular requested transfers that I saw on Twitter. Fans have been asking for, um, but there's no word on whether Rockstar or you know um, CDPR are going to work on something to get people uh, to move their saves forward. I will probably put my money on CDPR coming out with figuring out something. You know, those are potential consumers for the future with, you know, your... Uh, I forgot the name of it, the Project Liberty uh, expansion that you have coming up and just kind of the future of cyberpunk, you would want those people to or put those Stadia fans in a position to spend money. And I, would, I would, wouldn't be surprised if cyberpunk was the best-selling game on Stadia, especially early on when it had all those issues. A lot of people were talking about how good it looked on Stadia. Uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, with everything going on at Rockstar... Uh, and the fact that Red Dead Online doesn't look like they're really supporting it this much, I kind of wouldn't hold my breath on them figuring something out for you, but obviously we'll have to wait and see. Hopefully they do. Um, the other things we have to discuss with the, the death of Stadia is that right now a few games are at danger of being lost forever because they were Stadia exclusives. Now, it's a short list. It includes Hello Engineer, Pixel Junk, Raiders, Outcasters, Pac-Man Mega Tunnel Battle and Guilt. I had no idea outside of Guilt uh, that these games were Stadia exclusives. I had no idea that Stadia had a Pac-Man exclusive. Obviously, a lot of us weren't really paying attention to the service. Uh, Guilt was apparently the one that was most critically and commercially um, acclaimed. So it's good to hear that uh, they've already confirmed that they've begun the process of porting this game. Not really sure exactly um, where it's being ported. Um, one easy way to fix this in terms of Stadia would be that Google can just dissolve any exclusivity clauses and allow these games to be ported. The good thing is that Stadia is publicly shutting down, but it doesn't mean that privately they're shutting down. So I'm sure that it'll be easy for them to extend some time past January 2023 to ensure that those developers are able to get those games ported. And um, as I said, it probably wouldn't be too hard for Google to dissolve or come up with a new contract that sort of dissolves that part of their original contract that would have made it a state exclusive and basically told those developers, you can't put this on Switch, blah, 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 blah. Um, seeing how much goodwill they're showing towards the refunds and everything else. I think they're really doing the shutdown the right 
way for as much as I've made fun of Google. I got to commend them. They are doing the right thing when it comes to this. So I could see them doing that. Um, it also looks like Stadia will, the technology will still be around as a licensable product. Earlier this year, they confirmed that the tech underneath Stadia could be licensed under a Google Cloud service called Immersive Stream for Games. And there was no mention of this being canceled. So it looks like Stadia will live on in some form. It just won't live on as a public service. It looks like privately companies will still be able to use it. Um, so the big question is why? Why did Google Stadia fail? So first off, this doesn't mean that cloud gaming is going bust. It doesn't mean that this is indicative of like, you know, oh look, this is proof that cloud gaming will never survive. I think it's proof that cloud gaming alone is not enough. I think it's it's proof of that. Um, I think it's proof of how how hard it is to come on as like trying to be the fourth uh, out of the big three. So Xbox, Nintendo, uh, Sony, and 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 Google. You know, it's a lot harder. It's easier said than done. Um, but I don't think that it means that cloud gaming is bust or, you know, X cloud is going to shut down in, in, in a few years, you know, they have a huge machine and exclusive games and great partnerships, uh, behind them. So I don't, I don't think that's really what this means. Um, so why did it fail? Number one reason, and it's the one that I brought up consistently on the podcast, they had this very ambitious investment into first party studios. And I distinctly remember talking about on this podcast that this was a mistake. It just made no sense to me that they would invest so much time and money into building first party studios, knowing that creating a quality, quality experience, creating a great game is going to take you four or five years which means that even if everything went according to plan right now, we are in the year 2022 stadia um, released in 2019, we wouldn't have seen a single game come out of their studios until 2024, 2025. Right? So with that being said, you can understand why that was just a total waste of money to sink millions and millions of dollars into the creation of these first party studios. And I think it was the last year that they announced that they were going to be shutting them down. One story that sort of came back into the spotlight this week or last week was from last year when Phil Harrison announced the closure of their first party studios. He cited Microsoft's Bethesda acquisition as one of the reasons when he had like a Q and a session with employees. And there were people last week on Twitter kind of bringing up, um, you know, this is why it's bad um, uh, that Microsoft is buying Activisions. You can see them buying Bethesda led to Google Stadia um, shutting down. No, no. <laughs> um, what Phil Harrison meant by that, and I think it was, it, it, this is actually a great thing to bring up because it's indicative of, the mistakes that Google made with Stadia is they severely underestimated 
how hard this was going to be. And I brought this up also in the past that they really came into gaming very, very cocky. If you, if, if you remember back when they first announced Stadia, they were bragging about how, you know, Stadia had more teraflops than the next generation, Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5. They really talked a lot of smack about what they can do uh, versus what their competitors can do. And I think because of that, they failed to really step back and iron out um, a plan that made sense and really talk about what the stadia looked like year one, year two, year three, year four. What are the features that we really need first? Um, what they did was that they, they began with a lot of these pie in the sky things instead of being a lot more conservative, going slow, right? If you remember... At the announcement, they were talking about, you know, oh, you can do, uh, what is it, like split screen with like 10 people and uh, there will be no lag and uh, drop in, drop in co-op co and streamers will be able to invite people and there'll be like this digital queue of people coming in and, uh, you know, link sharing where you click on a link, you can instantly go into a part of the game like you know, they were extremely ambitious instead of slowing down and saying, what do we need first? And once these features are ready, then we'll announce them, right? They they didn't go into that. The other thing was that they, they failed to understand like, okay, if we do this, what can we expect our competitors to do? For them to not understand that, you know, you're not going to outbid Xbox for Bethesda, for example. That quote also meant that it was very likely that Google and Amazon were part of the people in the running of buying a studio like Bethesda. And, you know, if you're Bethesda, this really gamer centric type of studio, do you think that they were going to sell to Google? I mean, like, you know, even if they outbid Xbox, like you understand that that's like the death of your IPs, that's the death of its software. That's the death of Bethesda if you were to sell to Stadia or to Amazon, right? So to them, how could you not see this scenario playing out? That it is very possible that Xbox and Sony are gonna get aggressive with picking things up and they're gonna take things away from your platform. So you already have a small pool, but now they're shrinking it even more. So it's not really to say like, oh, this led to the death of Stadia. Stadia not having a proper plan was what, what, what led to the death of Stadia. The other thing was large investments into bringing in AAA titles early, such as Red Dead Redemption 2 and Cyberpunk 2077. Apparently they were spending like $10 million, or I think even over $10 million, to convince these studios to, to bring these games to Stadia. Once again, really poor uh, waste of money. You would have been better off finding the indies, the gems, um, the Fall Guys, the Among Us, for example, those types of games that uh, don't cost much or really cheap to, 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 to develop and publish and hopefully find yourself a multiplayer hit that can get people to come over um, to Stadia. Find the next Battle Royale type of thing or something like that instead of giving Rockstar $10 million for a Redemption 2, a single-player game. Doesn't really make much sense. Um, 
the other thing is Game Pass and xCloud, right? Compared to Stadia Pro, which was an extremely limited library of games. That definitely led to its its downfall. When you're going against this behemoth of a company that has access to way more than you do, it's not really going to turn out too fast. Uh, other things, the, the fact that they try to move too fast uh, is another thing. And then they couldn't attract the games that mattered, right? Uh, the Elden Rings, for example. They couldn't get those on uh, the platform because they just weren't growing fast enough. Um, but I think it really was a lot of... What's the, what's the word that I'm looking for? Like having eyes bigger than your stomach or, or you know what cockiness, I think it was a lot of cockiness from the leaders at Google where I think they truly believed that this was going to be easy. And it's weird that they will believe that because the position that they're in is exactly where Microsoft was when they introduced Bing. You remember Bing, the search engine? where they really thought they could compete with uh, Google, Google search. Um, that's exactly what Stadia was. It was them coming forward and saying like, look, we have this great new tech. We're going to do it better than them. And that's it. We're just going to be able to outplay Xbox and obviously the rest of the competition. Um, I think they really looked at this industry like, wow, there's so much money being spent here. This is going to be easy. And because of that, they underestimated. It's like the art of war, right? They underestimated the enemy and, and they underestimated just how hard it's going to be to gain enough traction to convince people to come over to your platform. It's just not going to be easy. So, you know, um, I do feel for those Google employees, hopefully they were moved over onto other projects. Um, I know there were some employees that were kind of unhappy with like, wow, I've been working on this feature for like months and I just found out that I can't implement it. Um, so, you know, stuff like that sucks. The whole thing about developers not knowing sucks. Um, I get how upsetting it could be having saves that you, you know, you're not worried if they might be stuck now. Um, there is one thing that I will say about that I will praise Stadia and Google for is they took a shot. Now they took the risk. And I think that from a technology standpoint, they showed that cloud gaming could work. The only people who were really complaining about Stadia not working from a tech standpoint were people who either played it day one, which when it first launched, it really wasn't too good, um, or people that just never played it. I remember trying it when it first launched and the technology was absolutely there. So hopefully other people use it for their own projects. Um, but everything else just wasn't there, you know? And I think for me, the reason why I can sit here and be like, you know, you, you will not be missed Stadia is because it just annoyed me as a gamer, uh, as a person who has loved this industry for so long, it just annoyed me how pompous and cocky they came into this industry. And I think that's the reason why for me, it's like, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. You know, um, this week's high release is October 4th. We have Overwatch 2 
PC, PS4, PS5, Switch, Xbox One, Xbox Series X. October 5th, Deathverse, Let It Die, coming to PC. October 6th, Near Automata, coming to Switch. And then October 7th, we have another Switch port, No Man's Sky. Now it's time for us to wrap it up. These are the stories that we did not have time to get to. The Game and the Game Rating and Administration Committee of Korea has rated the unannounced Silent Hill the short message. Look, for the love of God, Konami, Bloober, whatever, whoever's doing anything, just, just announce something. Like, I'm just so sick of leaks and talks and remake, new thing. Like, it's so painfully obvious that there's a new Silent Hill something happening. Could you guys just, 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 just confirm it? Just confirm it and get us out of this stupid leak cycle for Silent Hill. I just want to get off of this boat. Ubisoft has delayed Skull and Bones from November to March 9th, 2023, once again, which is like its fifth delay. I said it before when I talked about this on a podcast, for the love of God, do not buy this game. It's going to be an utter, utter disaster. They are not going to be supporting this game for years and years. If this game looks interesting to you, get an Xbox, get a PC, go play Sea of Thieves. Um, People Can Fly announced that Take-Two Interactive was terminating their publishing agreement for their latest game. Two years into development, an action adventure called Project Dagger. Um, You know, best of luck to this team finding another publisher. Unfortunately, it is just the reality of publishing. There's no guarantee if a publisher looks at a project and thinks, man, there's no way for me to get my money back, they're not going to continue it. And unfortunately, people can fly after the disaster that was Outriders. I feel like right now, you know, there's not as much trust in them as a developer, uh, especially after what they did with Bulletstorm, which was amazing. And mind you, an argument can be made. A lot of the issues with Outriders can be Square Enix related, trying to push the service title kind of thing. But uh, hopefully they find another publisher to get their game um, out there. E3's in-person comeback has been dated for June 13th through the 16th with digital events um, starting June 11th. They also announced separate industry and gamer days, which is so, so immensely important for uh, E3. One of the worst things about E3 is the um, how congested it can be if you're going as as part of the industry. It's really good that they're uh, separating it. Look, best of luck to them. I have been at E3 for quite some time. So um, it's cool to see this stuff happening in person. It sounds good. Read Pop is not, it's not taking over. They're the ones that are behind Comic-Con. So hopefully everything turns out uh, good. And then bonus wrap it up. Elder Scrolls Skyrim Anniversary Edition has been released on Nintendo Switch for $70. Um, kind of funny because I think this kind of makes this Nintendo Switch's first $70 game. I'm not 100% sure about that. But it is technically now Xbox's first $70 game. It's not even a game on Xbox for $70. I don't know why or how uh, this happened. This should not be $70. And then the problem is that now that it is $70, it's kind of hard to um, 
lower the price now. It's not like all of a sudden you can say like, oh, sorry, that was a mistake or something like that. Um, this game is not worth $70. I'm sorry. Even with all the extra stuff that they're adding, it's not worth uh, $70. Uh, shout out, shout out of the week goes out to HBO for that amazing Last of Us trailer. I've gushed about Last of Us <laughs> ever since they announced this project because every single element behind it is just perfect for putting this game on the screen. I like that you can see they didn't stray too far from the source material, but I think that's really indicative to how strong narratively that game is. is the reason why it's one of the greatest stories in video game history um so yeah can't wait for it thank you guys so much for joining me please follow us on twitter and youtube at camp koji for future updates once again i'm joel and i'll see you all next week <laughs>